0: My name is Craig Pickett. I'm an executive recruiter. More than a decade ago, I started my practice for one purpose, to use my experience as a former military aviator, business jet sales executive, and P&L leader to help aviation and aerospace companies and their executives be fast, adaptable, and strategic. I do these podcasts to inspire and inform, but more importantly, they are a focused platform to help business leaders grow. Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. welcome back to the aerospace executive podcast i am uh, very happy to have with me graham plaster who's up in maryland he is the ceo of the intelligence community.com he's a former assistant dean of students to at the naval war college and he's an expert advisor to uh, companies uh, the military government and defense intelligence agencies on emerging on emerging technology so uh
1: thanks, Graham, for coming on, today. Sure, yeah, thanks for having me, Craig. I appreciate it.
0: So a lot going on in the world. yeah. as far as uh, China and emerging threats and uh, stuff we see, stuff we bo- we don't see, what are the uh, what are the biggest threats that people feel like are out there now, and where are they coming from?
1: Well, the biggest threats, I think there's a couple of different things I would talk about. One, of course, is great power competition with China. Uh, you know we're looking at a couple different. Major technology uh, competitions with China, one being AI, another one being five g infrastructure, which of course ties into you know the cloud computing um, push that we've seen the last couple of years. And that has to do with the integration with everything IOt um, and then once you look at IOT, you're looking at uh, sensors for things in the sky too. So you're talking about Starlink with Elon Musk and you're talking about Um, the capability to extend the internet into uh, rural spaces and across areas right now that are underserved during a coronavirus. Um, All these things have major implications for our performance uh, in national security uh, silos. So uh, there's a lot of interest from the Pentagon and the intelligence community to try to source uh, the best technology quickly uh, and try to Shore up certain vulnerabilities in critical infrastructure, uh, as well as in the defense department.
0: So you you talked about a couple of things AI you know uh, uh, AI Internet of Things uh, you know Starlink Elon Musk are the you know obviously when people think about aerospace and defense they think a lot about Lockheed Martin Raytheon some of your big defense players. Are the SpaceX's and the Elon Musk's of the world, and some of these smaller companies that we really don't know about, are they playing a bigger, they play a bigger role?
1: Uh, you know, I'm not uh, an aerospace um, industry professional. I you know I track these things broadly, so I I don't want to get out of my depth. I would the reason why I bring up Elon Musk and Starlink is because, like a lot of people, um, he's one of the people who uh, has been able to elevate some of these topics to kind of public uh, consumption. And so I think that it's worth kind of starting there for the conversation. There are a lot of other companies that are doing stuff uh, with related technologies. I just had a phone call yesterday with a company that's doing uh, data centers in orbit. And uh, hosted, I hosted an event on Monday, which was a joint uh, military pitch day for a bit, about 100 companies that are looking to bring new emerging technologies into uh, DOD. And the Department of Defense, and also the intelligence community. And some of those are related directly to uh, technologies for space or technologies for aerospace. Um, so, we actually had Sir Richard Branson speak at part of the event, and we had the CEO of Zoom, and both obviously, uh, uh, Virgin uh, and Zoom both have technologies that are directly relevant, but there are a lot of cottage industries around both of those companies that are uh, certainly up and coming.
0: So what kind of technologies are we talking about here? What's, what's got you the most excited? What do you think is, uh, where do you think a lot of the emerging tech is all going? You know, what?
1: Well, I think that 5G has me very excited. Right now I live in a rural environment and uh, we've had a lot of trouble trying to get uh, our four kids and my wife and myself on um, high-speed internet using a satellite connection. Uh, We're using ViaSat, which is pretty much the fastest available satellite connection for internet. Um, And then we have six hotspots, uh, just upgraded to seven hotspots in the house, and we're maxing out our high-speed data. Um, And so we're looking forward to uh, 5G in a real way uh, for the last mile of connectivity in in that type of environment. And uh, we're looking at other other ways to get connectivity. So something like Starlink or other types of uh, low-orbit satellite options to bring connectivity around the world in rural environments is really interesting to me personally. And I think it is definitely interesting to um, DOD and the the IC for uh, the connectivity it offers and the targeting opportunities, that the caching of information on the edge uh, and the cloud computing capability to do uh, big data uh, crunching. And, um, and then the security aspects and, and vulnerabilities there are all interesting to me. So I think 5G is important. As we talk about 5G, of course, we talk about great power competition with China and, and Huawei and, and how we try to stay up with uh, the best uh, generation of you know, internet connectivity while dealing with political issues. But um, uh, 5G is where I'd start. So is Huawei, uh,
0: Yeah, you, know, you, hear, you hear a lot of noise about Huawei around the world right now. You're obviously an expert in the area. Is it as big a threat as uh, it's, it's made out to be in the, uh, in the news? I mean, you know, talk about you know, the, you know, the, the benefits of not doing Huawei and the, the benefits of, say, hey, look, let's go do something different.
1: I think there are very good reasons why we, would, we should be nervous about having uh, a foreign adversary, uh, having a, a dominant position in our critical infrastructure. In the United States, um, so as we look at um, intrusion into our critical infrastructure through, uh, you know, purchasing of the infrastructure, uh, or uh, through cybersecurity attacks on the infrastructure, we have to uh, be, be very cognizant about that. And, and in some cases, we have to defend ourselves, you know, fight back uh, through uh, cybersecurity methods, or in other cases, we can use political methods to try to push back. But in both cases, um, you know, we, we we should be concerned about our sovereignty and our um, and the protection of our assets as a country.
0: Gotcha. So, uh, you know, look, I, uh, you know, I think I think when it comes to China, and you just take, you know look at the track they're going down. It's you know it's, it it's been something that's been kind of the, the Huawei thing's been ongoing for you know last six seven years as they've been growing and where they've been getting their technology, i.e. a la Cisco and some of the other places. You know, I, I kind of had that same opinion that, you know, why even risk it if backdoors are, if there's a backdoor potential, you know, why not just go, is, 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 there, is there a definitive need to source stuff from China or is there enough technology around the world to spread the wealth?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was at a, a defense event several years ago hosted by one of the leading trade associations. And the keynote speaker was, you know, the founder of Kaspersky. And, uh, you know, that's a it's a Russian cybersecurity company. So um, as good as their product is, of course, it has vulnerabilities because of where it's located. And uh, we can, you know... keep your friends close and the enemies closer is one approach. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other another approach is um, of course, isolationism and and a cold war mentality of creating a lot of walls and protected, you know, intellectual property. Um, So these, these things are all different approaches. There's uh, there are vulnerabilities with each approach. And one of the approaches, of course, uh, being the cold war mentality of, of total um, compartmentalization is, is what was uh, critiqued in the 9/11 Commission Report, which is that things were so siloed and so protected and so compartmentalized that we weren't able to share some of the important data that we needed to in order to prevent 9/11. Now, compare that with a very open approach. Now, we use in our NASA exploration have used Russian rockets, right, and mm-hmm. and have built a um, an international community of scientists that allows us to do things diplomatically through the science community that we can't necessarily through this, do through the state department or the military sometimes. Right. Um, and so by building that connective tissue uh, through um, the space community, we have perhaps been able to stave off some, um, some events that, you know, we couldn't have in other ways. So by having a relationship with companies like Kaspersky or maybe Huawei, uh, I would argue that, um, Perhaps that is a way to build international stability, but uh, on the other hand, when that company um, whether it's huawei or 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 another company, when that company is completely uh, beholden to the uh, the uh, regime that's in power, then we should we should be nervous about that.
0: yeah, I agree with you, but yeah, you know, so we we talked a little bit about yeah you know, AI five g you, know, you know going back to the the military defense side of the house is there's, you know, there's been a big focus on aircraft carriers, aircraft, you know, trillion dollars spent on the F-35. You know, are we really looking at the, are we really barking up the right tree when we look at these big programs? Should we be focusing more on, you know, the you know, more on drones, more on satellites, more on, you know, just cyber. I mean, is that where the next battles are fought?
1: Well, one of the critiques on platforms comes out of Christian Bros's recent book. Um, if you, if you've seen the kill chain, which came out this year, he talks about how the Pentagon is always purchasing platforms instead of capabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly we can look at the purchase of large platforms, expensive platforms, something that uh, creates its own vulnerability because if you sink a carrier or you take down Uh, In a jet, you've just, you know, taken a big chunk out of our spending, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas a swarm of inexpensive drones might be a a much more difficult target to bankrupt America with if you were to attack it. Um, So there's kind of a too big to fail kind of problem with aircraft carriers and and, and large infrastructure type um, expenses um, where we can't afford to put them in harm's way. Because if we lose it, it's it's too too much of a loss. Um, on the other hand, I think that the mil, the the U.S. Uh, military's dominance is largely, um, you know, it's largely a result of the aircraft carrier platform and the ability to project power around the world, and also our our submarines. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm a little bit Navy centric in how I think about these things, uh, but. Um, the platforms have done a lot for us in reinforcing our position as um, the world superpower for a long time. So if, as we move forward, if we do shift our mindset away from platforms towards capabilities, I think there will be an enduring need to think of capabilities in terms of systems, if not platforms. And certainly when we're talking about, um, Systems like operating systems, like uh, Christian Bros, who wrote Kill Chain and criticized platforms, also is working for Anduril as the chief strategy officer, and they recently uh, pitched that Anduril would become the operating system for warfare, the OS for war, um, and so that in some s- has some similarities to becoming a-, a platform, if you will, again of the future, uh, just like uh, the aircraft carrier was a platform. So, so to differentiate between platforms and systems, I would say that maybe a system would be a lot more agile to, to you know, be upgraded from year to year, whereas platforms have persisted over 40 plus years in the same form. Um, so the ability to kind of reinvent yourself, or as like well, we've said in the military, to to rebuild your jet while you're flying it is very difficult. Uh, So to be able to create a a system that can be that can be continually upgraded while you're using it is is important as technology change accelerates.
0: Is the DOD concentrating? I mean, the the issue you have, you know, you're an ex-Navy officer. You know, you see these program leaders, they come, they go. New guy comes in. Different chain of thought. I mean, it seems like it's it's always shifting. Is there a long-term strategy in the aerospace air and defense world to create the systems? Or is it more like, you know, hey, look, this is good for two years, then we'll figure it out in two years, just kind of kicking the can down the road, always putting Band-Aids on stuff?
1: Well, I think there are strategies. Um, I won't you know, speak to how well those strategies are being followed or implemented, but Certainly, the 2018 National Defense Strategy that came out of this current administration, and then also recently there was a um, Emerging Tech Strategy that that was just published. I think a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they're very, very broad documents, but they do point us in the direction of needing to invest more dollars, more time into uh, getting access to emerging tech. Now, one of my friends, Pete Newell, who uh, helps uh, run Hacking for Defense through his company BMNT. He says, you know, we can't just speed up acquisition of stuff. If we buy more stuff faster, it doesn't guarantee that we are buying the right stuff for government. Um, And so we've oftentimes criticized the acquisition process as the primary problem in uh, getting uh, emerging tech into um, government and DOD. Right. Uh, but we have to solve both at the same time. We have to make acquisition better while also figuring out how to get access to the right stuff. How
0: do you do that? I mean, you, you've got a very big, cumbersome acquisition process. You've got congressional budgeting requirements. You've got a whole lot of you know, hurdles that you have to you, you know, you jump over, but tech changes so quickly. How do you, yeah, how does, how do the intelligence communities, how does the DOD, how does Raytheon and, and the big defense guys even keep up with the, with the needs?
1: Well, there have been a lot of initiatives. Uh, for instance, in the last couple of years, there was something called a section 809 panel, uh, which was established to try to figure out ways to improve acquisition. Um, and there was a lot, there was some pushback from, uh, constituencies within the SBA, uh, especially among the, um, the set aside communities, the small business, um, uh, communities, uh, because for a long time, there have been ways that the government can purchase things quickly, whether it's through, uh, sole source methods, uh, OTAs, um, you know, B- 8a, things like that. And, and yet there are cultural chasms between those different uh, acquisition models. And so when you try to, uh, use one instead of the other, then there are some, there are some political forces there, but to answer your question more directly, uh, how can the government do it? Um, I think they are currently doing it, but I think that they need to potentially provide a lot more education, uh, and also align incentives correctly internally so that, um, so, that there's a little bit of fire in the belly to do it across government. Because right now, if you're working in government and you're buying technology, uh, the, the whole process is slow and you're not gonna lose your job if, the, if it moves a little bit slower. In the private sector, um, if you don't sell your stuff quickly or solve the client's problem quickly, you might lose your job and your company might go away. So, the government ha- has. An incentive to protect tax dollars, spend it slowly, spend it safely, it's very risk-averse as a result, it wants to go with big you know, prime contractors that have done a lot of good past performance. Uh, they're not incentivized to take bets on small companies with emerging technologies that might fail, whereas in the private sector, an investor you know, wants to get through nine failures to get through the, to the unicorn success on the 10th try. So there's a very different ecosystem on both sides. So if, does that, does the mentality need to change
0: then? Does the mentality need to change? Hey, look, you know, let's, let's, you know, well, it, politically it's probably very hard, you know, to, like you said, to blow through nine companies or nine, nine systems to, you know, before you find the right one, nobody looks at the, the success. They look at the nine failures along the way. So I guess. Yeah, I think the culture
1: is changing. If you look at Dr. Will Roper's kind of push to, um, to do a lot of that, um, to create a uh, more of an acceptance of risk because they understand that if you're not taking risk, you're not going to get the higher rewards. And for a long time, DARPA uh, has had the high risk, high reward branding around what they do. Um, if you look at what's happening with the AFWERX uh, SBIR um, grant um, mm-hmm. efforts, they're taking a lot of small bets of so $50,000 each to try to get new companies in the door. And then hopefully some of them will make it to Phase two and on to a Phase three program record type opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even that, uh, you have a huge uh, what it's called Valley of Death, where companies will get a little bit of money from government, get, get kind of the wheel turning, and then they can't quite get over to a long-term contract. Right? Because it's like an 18-month to you know, 24-month sales cycle to really get into something serious. Um, and if you don't have enough people working for your company full time, it's going to be uh, you know too big of an effort to to really fund. So I think what one of the things we need is we need an investor community that has the stomach for it that actually will help these companies develop an, a large enough staff to to make it over that valley.
0: Gotcha. So if I you know, going back to the private sector now, you know a lot of change going on. You know, AI, five G, Internet of Things. Defense and intelligence community, companies that are supporting them, obviously their targets. You, know, you read a lot like, hey, forget, you know, forget Boeing and Raytheon and Northrop Grumman. Let's go start to hack their suppliers. How do we how do we start to protect the the supply chain from you know, cyber? How do we yeah, you know, how do we start to protect it from other methods of intelligence gathering that the world is using to collect. U.S. information.
1: Well, I mean, supply chain analysis is a major theme among all of the consulting firms around uh, national security. If you go and knock on any you know door at Deloitte or KPMG or Booz Allen, you're going to find somebody who that's their specialty is figuring out vulnerabilities in supply chains. Um, so, I would say that there's probably a million reports out there already on how to fix that system. I'm not going to pretend like I'm I'm that analyst. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the My very simple response, especially post COVID, is going to be um, develop more systems that are in the United States and located inside of allied countries. Um, I'll I'll go ahead and argue against that point to and and harken back to an earlier point I made that if we do have systems that we rely on inside of other countries that are not as friendly, sometimes it can create uh, a vehicle for uh, peace building. You know, if we're relying on uh, companies in China, uh, and they're relying on companies in the United States, then it does give us a financial incentive to work through issues with each other.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: cause I, I like to say it, it creates kind of like the picture of two, uh, boxers that get tangled up, you know, they're not fighting because they are wrapping with each other. And so if you have that, uh, you know, those interests on both sides, then it can, it can provide, uh, kind of a tertiary opportunity. Uh, to work through things. On the other hand, the supply chain issue, I think, post-COVID is, you know, how can we make sure we're sourcing as much as possible from the United States, A, to keep money inside our economy, and B, to create more stable supply chains in case things get, you know, rocky. We can mm-hmm. make sure that we have those uh, supply chains uh, pumping. And uh, and maybe, maybe C, uh, to limit any vulnerability that we have for manipulation of the supply chains. So if we have foreign adversaries looking at ways that they can tamper with those supply chains by inserting things into them that we don't want in our country or or you know putting a chokehold on one of the supply chains, then you know it's best to get away from that.
0: You're the CEO of one of these companies. What's the one thing that scares the hell out of you? Is it AI? Is it is it yeah, you know, just a new cyber type of cyber threat? How do they protect it? how do they protect against it?
1: I think right now a lot of companies still aren't wrapping their head around cybersecurity threats, and we've done a lot of number crunching on how big those threats could be in dollars. I think it's you know it's trillions of dollars in risk that exists around the world in cybersecurity um, vulnerabilities. But I think uh, unless your company has just recently been hacked uh, or penetrated somehow, uh, then you're going to keep on doing business as usual. So, like all things. Um, in the military, uh, but in government, uh, laws and uh, standards are written in blood. So until something bad happens, things don't change. Um, And as a result, I would say, if I was running one of these companies, uh, one of the general pieces of advice is if it's a technology company, then security should be baked in from day one. When you're building your product, say it's it's a software platform, or even software, hardware, you know, blended platform. And I know I'm using the word platform, but we'll say not a platform, but a, a product. Um, you know, considering security from day one is important because uh, a lot of tech startups and technology companies want to run fast and break things, which is one of the slogans that Facebook used to use. Um, they want to they want to get up and going. They want to get funded. They want to uh, sell their company before they really run into any real friction. And then, but in the future, maybe, maybe that won't be possible anymore. Uh, we're talking about a future where, you know, you can automate a lot of, um, a lot of attacks uh, at a, a quantum speed. So in that, in, the, in that kind of a future, we might need to bake in uh, quantum strength um, encryption and quantum strength, uh, you know, protection from the beginning, uh, from day one of the creation of any tech company.
0: Are people starting to think about all that now? I mean, you talk, yeah, you, know, you hear a lot about quantum computing.
1: Yeah, um, I, I'm advising on a company right now called Quirks, um, and we actually have a technology that is quantum-proof uh, encryption. Um, also, you know, I know about uh, the founder of the Entanglement uh, Institute up in uh, Rhode Island, and then I know there's a, also a, a quantum computing lab in, down with the University of Maryland. So there there are definitely people thinking about it. We're still years away from, um, you know, stable, usable quantum computing. But I think we do need to be thinking about it now uh, because the amount of speed that is implied with that uh, would, would change the game quite a bit.
0: I hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the Aerospace Executive Podcast. You can reach out to me directly, Craig, at northstaresg.com Or check us out at www.northstaresg.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or on YouTube. Just do a search for Aerospace Executive Podcast. Thanks again. I'm Craig Pippen.